Good morning, everybody. Uh, welcome to Disability Inc. My name is Laurie Podvesker. I lead the agency's policy work in disability and education. Delighted to be joined today by our senior family educator, Ruth DeRoma. Welcome. Thank you, Laurie. <laughs> so glad you're here. Um, Ruth, you um, have been in the space of advocating for people and social justice for quite a while now. I'm wondering if you could tell us how you first got involved, and when that was, and what it looked like. I think I didn't even realize I became involved. Um, <laughs> when I was very, very young, my mother was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease, mm. and it became progressively more difficult for her. But very amazingly, she wound up in the study that Oliver Sacks conducted with the L-DOPA patients back in the late 60s. And she was one of the Awakenings patients, if anyone had seen the movie with Robin Williams and Robert De Niro. My mom was one of those ladies. That is so a, cool. Yeah. And... Um, so I remember that very vividly. I remember running down the hall after Dr. Sachs, asking when she would get her next dosage. And all that while, um, watching her go from a person who was walking to a person who needed to use a wheelchair and realizing back then how, how difficult it was for her to get around and to really have things that were accessible to her. And even as a young woman, um, I realized I could hardly take her out of the institution that she was in. So started to believe that there had to be a way to do this and that we had to stand up for people who um, should be able to be involved in um, all the arts programming and um, events that life has to offer. Was that here in New York City? It was in the Bronx, New York. <laughs> Is that where you grew up? Absolutely. Wow. Born and raised in the Bronx. Wow. So for those of you who don't know who Oliver Sacks is, was, um, he still very much has a presence in our space and in our culture. He was a neurologist um, and uh, quite a historic one for many reasons, yes. as well as a character, to say the least. Yes. <laughs> um, so, wow. Okay, so that was your first entree into yes. seeing discriminative practices right. and people being excluded. And back then, this is in the 60s, correct? Yes. Um, it was very different than how it is today. And um, wondering um, what... What what happened next in terms of um, your involvement on that issue, or did you go elsewhere? What kind of work did you get married? What happened? Well, in um, you know, kind of the normal progression, you go to school in New York City, you go to Element PS twenty eight, junior high school one seventeen, the high school of art and design, and all the while, you know, you start putting together a life. And um, I was really kind of just taken with the whole art scene, especially being in an art school in the 60s. It was kind of amazing. Art and design was a real eye-opener for me into the whole world of the arts. And um, I really felt that 
you know, there's some connection there that people really could um, blossom and learn to do things and learn art and creativity. And luckily, actually, the institution that my mom was in, and because of Oliver Sacks and some of the other people, there was a lot of music therapy going on. So all of that kind of came together for me. Um, I went to college and actually majored in English and art. And after that, um, kind of went to graduate school and needed to pay for graduate school. So I walked into the NYU um, financial aid office and they said, well, you know, you're eligible for work study. Um, why don't you see if any of these jobs appeal to you? And I found something called hospital audiences, which was remarkable because it took a whole bunch of things that I believed in and put them together. It put the whole concept of the healing role of the arts. Um, Is that nonprofit or government? Nonprofit funded by many government agencies, private nonprofits, foundations. And I walked in as a work study student and stayed for 30 years. Not as a work study student. <laughs> and, and wound up being the associate director running what was basically an agency that employed about 30 some odd full-time people, uh, 500 performing and visual artists, and um, was really just everything that I could believe in. Um, arts, you know, social service, equality, making sure people got to where they were going in the cultural world, um, the organization provided workshops. In fact, it had probably one of the most, uh, one of the largest collections of outsider art of any in any organization in the country. Probably. Where were you guys housed? Um, in Times Square, primarily, um, because of <laughs> the, the art. Yeah. Crackpot days. Um, yes. When, in fact, we had um, before 42nd Street became the current 42nd Street, we had even applied for one of the theaters that we were going to turn into a completely and totally accessible theater. Every inch of it was going to be completely accessible. But that whole new 42nd Street project um, kind of was sidelined, and it became the new and glitzier 42nd Street pro project. And... Um, so we didn't get that, but we got a lot of other things. So we were primarily in the Times Square area because of theater. And we would take people out from these institutions and nursing homes and students at risk and drug programs and drug treatment centers and bring them to theater. And that was kind of an amazing thing to see young children for the first time. And my first experience about the second or third day I was there was when a young boy turned to me and said to me, it's live. <laughs> Those are real people. And it never had occurred to me that he thought he was going to a movie. And when he realized, and he said, and they're singing to me. And I went, yes, they are. And the look on his face, I guess that solidified 30 years right then in there. Wow, beautiful, powerful. And it must have been incredibly interesting to be there at the times that the civil rights movement was yes. full on and emerging. Exactly. And, um, you know, I sit here and listen to you and think about what that looks like today 
and what it looked like then. And I just want to back up for one second um, because, <clears throat> excuse me, you know, music therapy, you know, you talked about that in the institution that your mom was at with Dr. Sachs in the late 60s. And, you know, music therapy is a fairly newer term right. in our space. And when I say new, it's all relative, mm -hmm. maybe 20, 30 years. And uh, for those of you who don't know, um, think about somebody who may have had a stroke in the hospital. It's not very responsive. And someone comes in and starts singing happy birthday and they hum. So it gets their mind going. And did they name it back then? Did they identify that it was there was a therapeutic process to that, that was functional as well as recreational? I think they were beginning, but it was still basically recreation, and you had recreation directors, and they were probably less, you know, formal, but they did, but they were there. They were there, and especially because of, um, you know, the study that my mom was involved in, they were trying some very amazing things. In fact, there's um, a story, one of the patients of that group in the awakenings group there was a piano in the dining room and this man had basically was not um, played for many many years because of the parkinson's and once on the aldopa when he was able to start moving again um he sat down at the piano and he was practically a virtuoso and it was remarkable to hear him play, and it was just so heartwarming. And they used music in a lot of ways to get the patients How incredible, moving. right? I know we all subscribe to the power of music, and um, you know, I know for me, my son is nonverbal, and music is a way that he communicates and interacts with people. And you know, from a policy perspective, because mm -hmm. I wear the policy hat here, you know. Um, we really hope to keep pushing for more arts in our schools and especially those students with more involved needs. And, and I think one of the most important things for me was the timing because I remember we actually answered when the federal government was working on the ADA mm. and when they actually asked for comments and things we just flooded their, you know, uh, their mail I guess back then, real mail snail mail, um, with old comments, school. yes, old school, um, with comments and descriptions and um, really just made sure that, you know, the arts were included in that. And several of the things that we did back then, I think, were really amazing. We conducted a study of um, New York City arts institutions, all the museums, all the arenas, the um, galleries, um, and there were over 300 different entries. And I'm gonna stop you for one second. So now I think of like Chelsea as being like the art hub. At right. one time it was near 57th Street or the fancier galleries. Back then, where were most of the galleries located in New York well, City? Well, this, this is kind of an interesting part of the story because initially when we did the um, first part, the first book, um, it was called Access for All, a guide to New York City for people with disabilities. Didn't the mayor's office recent mayor's office of people with disabilities just put out a guide in yeah. the past couple of years, and I think it's the same name. Some, it could be. You know, I think we may have you know copyrighted it back then, but by now <laughs> it's gone. Um, but when we first did the when we first put this whole kind of guide together. Um, we really were did it with basically theaters and, and other kind of cultural institutions. And we did it in conjunction with the 
with Lincoln Center and the New York Community Trust and CBS. So everybody had kind of a stake in this thing, but we wrote it. And um, what was we had a team of students, um, both high school students and college students mixed together, all of whom had disabilities. And we made up a team um, of students. One person had a visual impairment. One person may have been deaf or um, you know, had hearing impairment, one used a wheelchair, one was blind. So we put together teams and sent them into these theaters and sent them into these museums so that they could actually measure every phone cord, every toilet, every water fountain, every doorway. And we measured all that and compiled this into a guide to see you know, the slope of the ramp, all of those things. So after we finished this guide, what happened was Chuck Close, who's ah. a very famous artist, said, where are the galleries? And we said, well, we didn't quite have enough money to do the gal some galleries. So he said, what if I helped? And very wonderfully, one day I went down to Chuck Close's studio down in the village, so cool. and he handed me a check and said, finish it. And I watched him paint, stood there just absolutely in awe, practically couldn't get a word out other than thank you so much, left. He's a wheelchair user, correct? Yes, and exactly. And his, he did his, he does his artwork off of pulleys. He stands in front, and as he gets to a, each section of artwork, it's on it was on pulleys. I just, so cool. So he was kind of on a um, level, and then they pull it up to him. They were pulling it up to him. So I really have him to thank for that. And the galleries, yes, they were in midtown at, at that point. Um, and so we added in, I don't remember how many hundred galleries. That's so beautiful. And um, thankfully, there was somebody who really believed in what we did and wanted to make sure that the widest possible audience could access the artwork. So it was wonderful. Does that organization still exist today? Um, unfortunately, um, it's kind of morphed into different things, but um, it actually became healing arts initiative mm -hmm. later on using the same name um, if anything it's a much smaller organization now because truthfully there are so many things in place now when we started um, uh, when you went into a Broadway theater there was no space for a wheelchair user now there are seats taken out and hopefully up front for someone who uses a wheel. Now there are FM units. Now there are all sorts of programs that are set aside, special autism friendly performances. So what we were doing, I think, was you know bringing to the forefront what did, but more importantly, back in nineteen in the nineteen nineties, what didn't yet exist. So in a way, now people have much better access. We're not there yet. Because if you can't get on the sidewalk because the curb cut is too high, we still can't get you into the theater. But we still, you know, there's still work to be done. And um, but I'm glad to feel that I was at the forefront of it, 
and all those many, many days of measuring everything uh, paid off. Very cool, very cool. We also developed um, a bus that was really very amazing. And um, I asked the transit authority for a bus and they said, okay. And I explained what we wanted it for. Um, we wanted to bring people together to these cultural events. So they gave me a decommissioned bus. A city bus. A city bus. <laughs> and this bus basically became a prototype for many, for what we see now. It had a lift. All the seats in this bus flipped up so we could get 10 people who use wheelchairs in the bus at the same time. So 10 people could go together from, let's say, a nursing facility. This was before Accessoride. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I could tell you stories. And, um, or Stressoride. Stressoride. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there were a couple of times that we, got, we once got stuck in the Lincoln Tunnel and things like that. So yes, we were causing stress. So, um, really but, it was, but not only did we, could we get wheelchairs on that bus, we could get beds on that bus. So we literally would bring people in beds, like veterans and other people who were kind of confined, you know, in a sense, who had to be in bed, um, to museums. They would literally go through the museum with guided with someone. And to the concerts in the parks, we would literally roll the beds to the front of the Philharmonic and the front of the Met Opera in the park. So it was really wonderful. And so for me, what started out as seeing my mom, you know, not being able to go to things, wound up to wound up being a lifelong concern that um, I wanted to make sure that the arts, that New York City, and everything that we have to offer was available to people. It's in your blood. It's sure in your environment. It's beautiful. Yes. Um, so one other question about your time there. Um, you've mentioned Keith Haring along the way. Yes. Remind me, please. Of well, actually, uh, we were having a, 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 a benefit at Alice Tully Hall, and uh, Jeremy Irons and Glenn Close were narrating along with um, uh, Sergei Prokofiev's um, wife were narrating Peter and the Wolf and it was filmed it's on film and we filled the hall with um, you know consumers from the different institutional programs and um, Ruth you're making me cry it's Monday morning come on I know I'm but it was what it was and you got uh, the flute and people tapping yes exactly Peter and the Wolf was like Charming, it's so Beautiful. charming. It was Jeremy Irons, Glenn Close, oh. and I could talk to them. I could talk, and Mrs. Prokofiev, who was the most delightful, Lena was the most delightful woman, and she was the wife of Prokofiev, who wrote the music, composed the music. So it was phenomenal. And we asked, um, I was looking for someone to design, to design the poster for the event, and I wrote wrote to a couple of artists, some were like, sorry, I don't have time now, whatever. But I wrote to Keith Haring, just because I kind of knew who he was from my background in arts. 
And he said, yes, <laughs> come on down to the studio. So his studio was down in the village. He'd be going down to the village a lot. <laughs> and, um, Me too. Yeah. <laughs> and um, met with him and described what we wanted. And he drew this magnificent poster of a big yellow wolf in, the, he, in his inevitable handwriting and lettering and designed the poster. And so that was really wonderful when we used that poster. He signed some of them and he signed one to me and at that point my son had just been born and so he signed one saying, uh, you know, to Mikey, Jerome with love, Keith Haring, which my I goodness. have. And How special. Yeah, it is. And um, so a few years later, after, when we got that bus, um, at that point they were testing, the Transit Authority was testing the film that goes around buses, like with the advertising, where they cover a bus with their, that plastic uh, kind of covering the film and the vinyl. And the Transit Authority said, um, would you like to cover this bus? Would you like it to say, you know, hospital audience? And then I thought to myself, I have an idea. So I asked Heath Herring again, or his, at that point, his estate, unfortunately, if we could use one of his designs um, to cover the bus. So here was this moving vehicle with dancers, <laughs> Keith Herring dancers. One side was blue. The other side was red, and this vehicle, I literally, even though I was so involved with it, I literally cried every time it pulled up near me. It's full because, of life. Yeah. It was the most gorgeous thing, and that was the vehicles after the Transit Authority completely. So it became a prototype for a lot of things that I see today on our buses, and I'm so proud of that, the kind of the flip, um, you know, ramp that goes up and down. Well, we had one of those, which just didn't flip too easily. It was very heavy, and it was on a pulley and all these kinds Bad. of things. But it was one of the first ones, the wrapping, the whole concept. We piped music. Wouldn't it be nice to have music on our buses nowadays? Yes. You know, yes. say if everybody was humming instead of, like, getting kind of crunchied up there. So, yeah, it was, it was really fun. Um, so the bus lasted for quite a while, but, you know, again, it was that whole period of time when anything was possible, and um, we really used that bus day in and day out. We hired retired New York City bus drivers, the union helped us find guys. It was just one small thing, good time. So remarkable, because this is a narrative that's missing in our space, and, you know, it's a beautiful intersection of New York City, people with disabilities, whether they're physical, cognitive, medical, psychiatric, right. the arts, um, incredible. So uh, you mentioned Michael, your son. Yes. Um, and um, we want to hear more about him. So we're going to take a break now. We'll be back to talk more about your son and, and teaching in two weeks from now. Thank you, Ruth. This has been great.